How does it feel to be behind the wheel, sir? It feels great. I tell you what. Mr. President, can I ask you a quick question on Israel before you drive away? No, you can't. I'm not unless you get in front of the car as I step on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only teasing. Okay, here we go. You ready? See it, sir. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Okay. All plugs aside, we've got a special episode for you today. Artie and I are joined by Adam Johnson of Citations Needed. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's it's so nice to have you because what we're going to get into tonight is very much in your wheelhouse. Citations Needed does media criticism. If you're not familiar with their show, it's a fantastic show. But this is very much their strong suit. And we want to talk about the role that, that media plays and media p- portrayals play in shaping the outcomes and struggle going on in Palestine right now. Because there's a huge amount of language and messaging that invisibilizes the very obvious colonial genocide that's going on. And by reproducing all these like framings and language that dehumanize Palestinians and trivialize the struggle, effectively, it's the social reproductive machine to deny the reality of of what is and has been happening for many years now at this point. Yeah. Like, you know, so so basically large systems of, of mechanized violence, of course, they require some degree of moral narrative. I mean, this is true of all kinds of large systems. And one of the things we examined on the show, we tried to examine the show, is how those moral narratives are both established and maintained, and they're established and maintained through language and emphasis and, th- and those things in general. So, you know, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict is is kind of, um, it's, 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 it's the double black diamond of, of media criticism because <laughs> you're, 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 you're having to, it's rather it's a rather bourgeois analogy. Sorry, um, it's, you're having you're having to. Um, I've seen Aspen Extreme. Uh, you're having to um, unpack layers of bullshit on top of layers of bullshit, mm-hmm. and in a way that is that is much like U.S. imperialism in general, because Israel is, is of course uh, an extension of U.S. imperialism. Is that it has lots of of it has decades of kind of myth making and and. Well, frankly, racism Mm -hmm. and um, those things are are difficult to kind of unpack. And we've tried to do it in a a series of episodes. We had an episode seven we did on BDS. Episode 28 was a two parter on the kind of what we call the asymptotic two state solution, which is sort of the the myth of the two state solution as a way of providing PR cover for the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Um, And then we've done various news briefs throughout the years sort of catching up with with the with the ongoings of that. And so. You know, it's it's one of those things where people are very propagandized and heavily indoctrinated into a system, much like they are with U- U.S. imperialism. And, you know, in, in some ways, it's almost sort of easier to pick on Israel than it is the United States' imp- version of imperialism, uh, because while they may be, um, you know, powerful relative to the Palest- Palestinians, and of course they are, uh, you know, is- Israel is still fairly small, um, both both population wise and, and financially. It's not. A, it's actually not a very rich country. It's it's a uh, it's per capita GDP is about 60, 65% of what the, the United States is. It's very, many ways, a very poor country. 
Um, however, it's it's such a stark example of sort of old school 18th century or 19th century colonialism that it compels the viewer and it compels the critic to speak out against it in a way that's substantive um, because it is it is unlike forms of maybe more neo neoliberal or WTO driven forms of colonialism that the U.S. <laughs> Uh, pro- proper engages in it is a, it is quite literally a form it is very sort of traditional ethnic cleansing much like the US did Australia Canada did to their native populations uh, the only difference is is that um, to put it crudely Israel's uh, ethnic cleansing is is slightly more is, is slightly more humane um, because they have to they have to they have to battle with the the, the, the sort of social mores and laws of the 20th right. century contemporary um, norms about mass death etc right so it's important it's important it's important from for settler colonists in, in in North America and Australia and in South Africa to not be too smug about about this right because it's many, mm-hmm. it's basically the same playbook in fact many exactly the same arguments the Zionist foundational arguments are largely based on or, or in many ways plagiarized from other settler colonial projects in, in North America and, and, and South Africa especially and so we sort of trying to unpack that in a contemporary version, especially with the patina of liberal Zionism, uh, which again continues to promise this this nebulous and I, and I think extremely bad faith two state solution. Um, is hard to do. It's 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 hard, very hard to do. And one of the things we try to do on the show. So it's a it's a big topic, and it comes to the forefront in an event like what's we've seen in the last few weeks, where we are seeing the massive asymmetry, mm-hmm. um, the massive power imbalance, the colonial. The ways in which we've started to sort of see, we started to kind of graph a colonial narrative onto what has always been a colonial narrative. Um, in many ways, the narrative is, you know, you never want to s- you spike the football every two celebratory about these things. But I, I do think the narrative has shifted slightly, which mm-hmm. is not in my interest to say as a media critic. My interest is to always say everything's dreary and bad. Um, <laughs> but in this case, I do think there has been there has been substantive shift in the narrative, but I think it's fairly minor. I, I don't think it's earth shattering, but there's definitely... There's definitely at least spaces in certain mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream media to like hear an alternative uh, narrative other than your kind of pat 1990s New York Times, New Republic, um, you know, war on terror bullshit kind of narrative, which is which was which is what which is what dominated for decades. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, there's I think there's been a lot of very sort of congratulatory mission accomplished style like look at what we've done they're saying the word um apartheid that's a huge win right and, and i mean it, i think yes in some sense it's like it's fantastic to see i guess the range of acceptable words used to describe this conflict uh open up in some sense but i think there's always also the worry about co-optation and the watering down of messaging and it's one thing to say apartheid, but without supporting like the um, BDS movement in conjunction with that, it, it's kind of hollow and meaningless. Yeah, I think actually in relation to this sort of uh, the question of whether there's been an overt shift in the way that especially I think liberals uh, and mainstream media organizations like the New York Times, for example, or maybe not the Times exactly, but, you know, um, your your. Um, Actually, I mean, the example I was going to use is like your John Olivers of the world actually having like a slight shift in their vocabulary. Um, It's funny because I had noticed you had tweeted recently, Adam, um, last week tonight's foreign policy takes never veer from safe liberal conventional wisdom. Uh, John Oliver's podcast had for years a long bit mocking Hugo Hugo Chavez. uh, (laughs) 
Yeah. So in a in a pretty in a pretty racist way too. Right. <laughs> so this will not happen. And if it did, it'd be both sides grandstanding. And you know, more or less. I don't know if you had a chance to see his. Not that I think you should have. I, you know, I did. I, I it it wasn't both sides grandstanding, but there's it was definitely still I think within a very safe liberal Zionist framework. I think he, I think he used the term apartheid like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apar- apartheid light was a nice little cop out. Yeah. Jimmy Carter yeah. used that. Used, you, Jimmy Carter used apartheid light 15 years ago. So I'm not sure how much of a progress that is. Um, I will say I will say it was better than I expected. Um, and I do think that my my initial supposition that he that he will stay within the safe liberal foreign policy dogma, um, I think is true. I think what happened, though, is the safe liberal foreign policy dogma over the past year or so has changed. Um, I, I think groups like, you know, Human Rights Watch calling it apartheid, although I have lots of criticisms of, of Human Rights Watch, but I think they they sort of had to to kind of maintain any credibility, because um, mm-hmm. especially the head of Ken, Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, has been running, has been running, you know, defense for Israel for some time with this kind of bullshit legal parsing. Um, during the 2018 March of Return, when Palestinians tried to march towards the quote unquote border of Israel to, to, to demand um, enfranchisement and and the right of return, they were being mowed down by snipers 100 yards away in mass. And, and yeah. the head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, tweeted out, like, you know, Israel must prove it as a legal justification to do this. And it's like, OK, <laughs> come on. Like, this is the kind of <laughs> this is the kind of liberal bullshit you usually get. And so I think that people increasingly calling it apartheid, I think the massive asymmetry has shifted the discourse around it. And quite frankly, uh, domestic activism in the U.S., specifically by... Palestinians have sort of always been there. But I, I do think that American Jews increasingly being anti-Zionist or non-Zionist um, has has, damp- has dampened or lessened the accusations of anti-Semitism. Um, because younger activists in general, not just Jews, but Palestinians, whoever, Arabs, uh, non, um, you know, non-Arabs, non-Jews, sort of the constituent um, supposedly represented by, the, by, this, by these entities, um, has just become more left-wing in general. And I think media has become more left-wing in general. Um, again, this is bad for my brand to say this, but I think in some, certain <laughs> things it's true. Um, and I think that that's opened up space, um, along with, you know, Bernie Sanders criticizing Gaza in 2016, like these high-profile events. You know, I don't want to give him too much credit because I don't believe in the sort of great man here, but I do think right. that the activists, the anti-Zionist activists, BDS activists especially, have, because, um, you know, if you look at the BDS demands, they're extremely... They're basically the demands of South, uh, the South African anti-apartheid movement, mm-hmm. right? Which is get right, right of return, which is you get to go back to where you were born or where your family's born, which is pretty reasonable, pretty moderate, uh, and equal rights for everybody. Mm-hmm. Many have interpreted that as implicitly a one-state solution. That's how I interpret it. Uh, there is some debate about that, but they're very like normal, supposedly democratic demands. They're not radical demands. They're saying until this, these things are achieved, these three pillars of BDS are achieved, we have to boycott. This 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 government, right? This 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 you know, status quo. Um, so I think that that's why that, that the untenableness of that, especially after 2014 during Operation Protective Edge, I think that because of the groundswell of outrage, the increased you know some people call it wokeness, but um, <laughs> it's certainly better than whatever the fuck the other thing was. Right. Uh, um, that I think it's changed. I think the culture's changed, and I think that someone like John Oliver or even. Um, I, you know, even the sort of very frustrated Daily Show kind of vaguely got to that same point, which is basically now we're at least acknowledging the asymmetry. You see this on MSNBC. MSNBC in, during 2014, like, never covered this. There was a handful mm-hmm. of examples, and even that's kind of changed. So I think I think it's fair to say it still operates within a safe um, framework. But again, 
John Oliver is sort of using the language, but he's not, he's not, you know, there's no advocacy for a specific policy. It's, it's, and this is the thing we came up with. The, the analogy I drew is the George Floyd protest where you sort of, everyone says the Black Lives Matter and police are this, and you kind of signal your, 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 your vague moral commitments, but you never signal a political commitment. Mm-hmm. You right. never signal support for boycott, divestment, sanctions, which um, Rashida Tlaib did t- uh, today formally. I think I know previously she had hinted at it or done it in some ways, but now we see it. Please, people say, okay, well, it's time to shit or get off the pot. You need, if you really believe these things are apartheid, why would you not even broach BDS? Which, of course, John Oliver would didn't do, right? Um, <laughs> because you know his, his line was basically the same line as Bernie Sanders's line in the, in the New York Times, which is. Obligatory Hamas condemnation. Israel has a right to defend itself, but isn't it really oh defending boy. itself too much? <laughs> right? Right. So it's like it's an improvement, but the basic premises are still operating under this zombie two-state solution rhetoric that I think is not as as maybe profound as others believe it is. But I think the real the real PR coup for the for activists is an acknowledgement that there's a that there's a pretty much a a bad party here, <laughs> right. which, is, right. which is which is the, Isra- the state of Israel, and there's a victim party who you know, albeit may use unseemly or or or, or, t- or tactics we may not approve of, but ultimately is living in a prison, right? It's, so if there's it's sort of you see if you see a you know prisoners who are being starved, beaten, subjugated, and there's a prison riot, we don't go around sort of blaming the tactics of the prison gang who fights back, right? It, it would seem morally fatuous. And I think that threshold's been crossed. And I think that's very reassuring. But like the George Floyd protests, w- w- where are the commitments to meaningfully defund the police? Which right. I think really is where the kind of pot where the praxis, if you will, or the rubber hits the road where it's like, okay, you've said the right rhetoric. You've said you've, you've name checked the A word. You've, you've name checked mm-hmm. the asymmetry and, and the apartheid. You sort of have the kind of vaguely correct line. But if you don't part, pair that with the support for the BDS movement, which is the only real meaningful movement being called for by Palestinian civil society and has been for some time now in terms of that, which is kind of universally accepted. Um, liberals, you know, religious groups, uh, secularists, communists, name it. If they're in Palestine, they support BDS. It's basically universal. Um, if you don't support that, then it does. I'm not really sure why the rhetoric shift is very helpful other than maybe getting more people to a place where they will accept that. Because... Right. So I, th- I think it's good. You know, I'm, again, I'm not supposed to give good progress reports, <laughs> but I would give the past week in terms of media uh, a B, a, a B minus. You know, it's <laughs> that's that's relative. It's all it's all it's all relative though. It's all relative. It's still shit. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. relative to what we saw during Protective Edge in 2014, which was just complete genocidal rhetoric. Yeah, I shameless. Mean, racist genocidal rhetoric nonstop. Now we have like 70% genocidal racist rhetoric and like 30% like, oh, wow, I can't believe Nora Erekat is, you know, on CNN again, or she's doing this Washington Post op-ed. I cannot believe there was three op-eds, three op-eds in the New York Times from Palestinians arguing for BDS, which was unheard of. And I, I, did, a meta, I did an analysis of the New York Times a couple of years ago about how many articles they had supporting BDS. They went, um, gosh, I believe over 10 years writing articles criticizing and never having one supporting it. And then now they've had, I think, a handful in the last few, in the last year. So again, take that for what it's worth. But I think it has changed. I think it's changed in ways that are substantive. The question is, can that rhetorical change transfer into a meaningful policy demands that don't don't just get watered down? And you see the watering down taking place right now, right? You have bills to condition aid 
and all these kind of you know sort of exotic conditioning mechanisms that I think are are, are a little bit dubious. Yeah, and to that end of the the kind of uh, limitations of what is actually being called for, I feel like one of the things that you see commonly uh, this is certainly the case with the the John Oliver segment, uh, but I think with uh, increasingly among um, people who are at, at the very least adopting the language as you say of (laughs) i was about to be a little bit over generous and say explicitly calling this out as an apartheid state as opposed to just sort of uh you know as i mentioned before sort of towing the line of apartheid like etc but i think that one of the things yeah we've been holding on to apartheid like for for a while 20 years (laughs) michelle goldberg the the apartheid light henry i mean apartheid like is sort of like is is basically the equivalent of the oh oh, you know the two-state solution is almost dead Right. It's this vague deadline that never comes. We're never quite apartheid. We're apartheid-like, <laughs> which is why I think when Human Rights Watch and others started calling it apartheid, it did actually really said, okay, well, you know that thing that was almost always about to happen? Well, it's here. And of course, it's always been the case, right? It's not new. Or at least it's 1967. I think what's uh, what's interesting is that then the the line that you go up to basically is now... Um, I think for, you know, for instance, the, um, not to make this, this, obviously we don't want to talk just about like John Oliver here, but the line that I think it's indicative, the line that he goes up to is, uh, that we need to call these things out explicitly as being war crimes, which is, which is, which strikes me as a bit like, okay, sure. But you're explicitly not saying anything like, oh, well, the U S does have you know, involvement in this. We primarily, you know, we're, we're a huge funder. Well, plus he's had a show for seven, plus he's had a show for seven years and this just occurred to him. I mean, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Also, yeah. Well, also that, but again, you know, again, it's not, I think it's not just, just him. I think, uh, you, you hear this a lot of like, you know, we have to, I think f- people first kind of come to the, we have to call this out as, um, uh, we have to call these things out as a, as a war crime, which again, yes, you know, ab- absolutely. They, uh, are like it's true and it's about the least that you could say like Israel has and what and has Israel is and has been doing what are te- textually speaking literally under international law war crimes right but I think one thing that you guys have pointed out um when your show here and there is I think you said something to the degree of like uh you can't appeal on the basis of the law to the people who make the rules essentially right yeah like, I'm, I'm never you know nima nima likes the traffic in international law language and to you know due respect to him i <laughs> i i don't it's kind of a bourgeois you know who international law such that it is is only in, is never enforced against rich countries right the icc right, is prosecuted exactly. the, the icc the international criminal court established in 2000 has prosecuted i think the number now is 44 people every one of them is african um, they, they sort of start investigations into Israel and the U.S., but it's like they never go anywhere because it's a total joke. Um, and in fact, the reason why they said they couldn't prosecute Blair for the war in Iraq was because wars of aggression are not against ICC, um, <laughs> the, 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 the ICC law. Now, the reason they're not against the ICC law is because guess who created the ICC? It was a right, exactly, rich white country. Exactly. Right? So like international law, yeah, but it's, it's sort of hall monitorism because the issue is actually yeah. not the war crimes because I think in the same breath, John Oliver would say Hamas is committing war crimes and then you sort of really, you haven't really gotten anywhere, right? Right. Um, and, by the, and by the definition of work, and by the definition of war crimes, Hamas has committed war crimes, which so it's like, it doesn't, you know, the tactics aren't the issue here. I think that's where you, people, people get lost in this kind of human rights watch liberal rhetoric about not the, the it, you know, human rights watch did not oppose the war in Iraq. Human rights right. watch does not oppose the Israeli bombing of Gaza right now. Mm-hmm. They, they don't oppose war. They oppose the method of war. Right. And I think the method of war is for, perfectly fine to sort of discuss in moral terms. But I think it kind of confuses the issue, which is not 
because under international law, Hamas or, or Islamic Jihad or whatever sort of group they claim are throwing rockets, they have a right to resist colonial occupation under international law. It doesn't really mean mm-hmm. anything. Um, and I think international law is a bit of, I think, a bit of a sort of distraction because it, avo- it, 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 it obscures the real colonial relationship between the occupier and the occupied. And the method in which the occupier fights the uh, fights for, uh, rather the method the method with which the occupied fights the occupier or the method with which the occupier subjugates the occupied, I, you know, I guess I'm I'm less interested in that as I am interested in how do we liberate people from occupation. <laughs> yeah, and and some of those tactics throughout history have ne- not been pretty um, historically, and I think when you start getting into the business of kind of litigating. The, the sort of boutique moral standards of various forms of resistance, I think you're, you're sort of playing a bit of, an, of a colonialist game, mm-hmm. um, especially in the context of Israel, which, you know, has been violating their very, you know, their very ex- occupation has been a violation of international law for 60 years. So like rhetorically, I don't know what it's supposed to mean exactly. Uh, it, it's and, and, and I will say I will say, though, one, one last thing. Sorry. I do know that people like Noir Akkad, who is a lawyer, have talked about this in legal terms. And but you know I know she does both both in legal and moral terms. So I, I'm not like dismissing. I think it has some value because it can win over a certain genre of of liberal. But I, I I personally don't find it very satisfying because I think you you begin to sort of you get into a bit of a trap where mm-hmm. then you're parsing the method of resistance versus the, the the moral necessity and urgency of resistance of occupation. Right. Does that make sense? Or am yeah. I being no, no, yeah, com- no, completely. I mean, but I think also this is the this is the kind of situation where that uh, that sort of language of what is the acceptable line. I mean, I think you know we we talk about this to to a to a certain extent on the show uh, pretty frequently, especially when we talk about um, the sort of you know left liberal elements that criticize uh, things like the the uh, riots last summer, for example, for you know being quote unquote uh, what was it that. Uh, some of those people said, um, "Yeah, that's that's a good analogy." You know, disorganized, etc. But the, yeah. but you know, in the in the case of in the in, I think uh, for obviously there are a lot of reasons I think to to not um, to you know to not disparage that any that under the fucking circumstances that are being presented here that any uh, t- that any tactics ne- necessary be taken really, um, but then especially in the context where already um, you mentioned this thing like uh, the to to sort of play. Um, to, to sort of referee on those tactics or degrees of violence questions plays the colonizer's game. I mean, in a very literal way, like uh, Netanyahu went the other day on Face the Nation talking to, uh, I forget who hosts that now, the guy who's like on that, uh, who also does political gab fest or whatever. One of the like, um Yeah, that guy who looks like a you know, whatever. Um, he looks like he fell out of like the blonde youth factory or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. But like the um, he went like Netanyahu went on Face the Nation uh, just the other day and said uh, said very directly, like, this is the difference between the IDF or between Israel and Hamas as like as though they're a monolith. But like this is the difference between us. Uh, we you know, we before we <laughs> before we missile strike a specific building we we tell people first mm-hmm. we let people know and then they leave as though yeah. as though no one is ever killed in those things although no one is ever maimed or hurt or can't get out or 
etc. Well, and right? I, I mean, it's it's one thing to like invoke international law as the reason that something that's morally objectionable should stop. But I think it's also worth noting that like, you know, Israel in many ways has the legal right to maim Palestinians. They have a lot of protections under the law to exert really awful violence on this population, whether it's legal or not. Right. And so I think just like simply sort of switching up the tactics and and trying to. Yeah, there, you know, there are plenty of ways they can they can enforce apartheid and, and subjugation and put people in, you know, open air prisons in Gaza. Right, without like necessarily committing war crimes, although you, you, well, their 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 occupation is still illegal under international law. But the war right. crimes itself, yeah, there, there's plenty of ways they could do that, and it's not a, I don't know, it's, you know, the U.S. didn't need to really commit war crimes to 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 have Jim Crow. It was a legal mechanism, <laughs> right. exactly. So it's like, I, you know, it's a, it's the, the the reason they're committing war crimes in Gaza is because because it's effectively a prison riot, for lack of a better term. I mean, they right. are in a prison. And they don't want to risk any of their people. So what do they do? They lob missiles in. And I mean, who who can count as a population who can be war crimes against is also incredibly subjective. I mean, if you actually take World War Two as a good example, you know, the uh, in the Shoah, like what was basically worked out in court was that the extermination project from the German government of Jews was a war crime. But the extermination project of disabled people was not. And so it's it, it almost doesn't matter if it's a war crime if there's also this ability through the the structures of social reproduction to dehumanize the subject of the war crime because it you know and that's also part of the project too is to make Palestine and Palestinian people less than people and um and I think that's been you know one of the biggest parts of this PR regimes for, you know, what is it, like 70 years now? Yeah, I'll, I'll read you, if, you, if you permit me, I'll read you a book from, yeah. um, from I'll read you a passage from James, James Peck's 2011 book, which I reference quite often because I think it's a very seminal work. Um, basically, no one's read it, unfortunately. I'm, I'm not being a hipster. It's just unfortunate that no one's read it. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I got the band's first album before they were cool. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's a criticism of the human rights sort of discourse and how, the, how it kind of limits the left in, in many ways. And I think so by design. And and I'll read you an excerpt where he's basically criticizing uh, the early human rights movement for its rejection of libera liberation movements in the global south. He says, "quote the uh, the human rights movements uh, uh, the human rights movement's deep uneasiness with all forms of radical or revolutionary social change was already evident in 1961 when the newly founded Amnesty International." Uh, pronounced that no prisoners who advocate violence could be considered prisoners of conscience. Thus, no revolutionaries, not Nelson Mandela in South Africa, not even the Bergen brothers who had destroyed the draft board records in the United States. The movement had generally criticized revolutions and, decolon and decolonizing rebellions as human rights travesties. No insurgency, including those in Viet uh, Vietnam or El Salvador, has escaped its censure for the killing of innocent civilians and the use of terror. No state redistributions of wealth and power have failed to rack up human rights violations. The Chinese revolution is regarded as one huge atrocity. The Iranian revolution is attacked as little more than a precursor to further repression. <laughs> the upheavals of decolonialization are blamed for having opened the way for oppressive authoritarian states. And so, um, in the, of course, the, the, the founder of, of human, you know, human Rights Watch itself, of course, was created in 1970, uh, 1977, 1978. Because they thought amnesty was too weak on communists, and it was called Helsinki Rights Watch, and its goal was to <laughs> monitor the human rights abuses only in the Soviet Union. That's why it was set up, which is why it's always been a, a laundromat for State Department officials, and they have a right. revolving door, right? Because the, the the point is, is that 
you know, if you referee a game equal, just, you know, again, Ken Roth, ahead of Human Rights Watch, spends half his time criticizing Hamas and half his time criticizing Israel. And he criticizes Israel, I think it's fair to say, in increasingly harsh terms. They sort of acknowledge apartheid. They kind of get all the liberal box checking out of the way. But he spends half his time criticizing Palestinian resistance methods as being, you know, whatever, not meeting his boutique moral standards. Right. That if I, if I, re- if I evenly referee a game between, um, you know, the, the Green Bay Packers and a peewee football team, <laughs> I'm not sure what that really means. You know, <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's not very morally interesting to talk about rights as if they're these abstract things that exist absent power dynamics. And historically, the human rights, the human rights, quote unquote, human rights uh, world's relationship with revolutionary movements has been one of this kind of both sides, as it were, but in a sort of very, I think, uh, manifest way, because ultimately, in many ways, the methods of war are about technological advancement, too. Like, look, look at, look at oh, you know, Hamas indiscriminately fires rockets. And so the head of Hamas 10 years ago says, OK, we'll sell us missile guided technology. We'll just fire on the IDF. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like so it's it's so that's more moral. You know, it's more moral what Israel does because they have, you know, laser guided precision, even though they kill civilians at a rate of 250 to one. At least they did in 2014. Now, I think the number is, you know, 50 to one or whatever, um, although that'll probably grow. So like. I've never been moved by this kind of human rights discourse or the kind of um, because I think it, it, it sort of doesn't really speak to the mental nature of liberatory anti-colonial movements, which, yeah. you know, I again, I, I want to be clear. I don't think that makes it I don't think that gives a free pass to liberation movements to be abusive, assault, murderous assholes. Right. Like, I don't think that that therefore is an excuse for, you know, revolutionary movements to purge people. And to, I mean, I don't think it's a it's not a blank check, but you, but you have to you have to speak, I think, to the sort of massive power asymmetries that inherent in anti-colonial struggles from Algeria to China to Iran to, um, you know, various communist revolutions or socialist revolutions or even even Haiti, which, of course, was neither. Um, you know, Haiti, ha- if, if Ken Roth was around in, in, in the early 19th century, he would have done nothing but, but scold and feel bad about the human rights abuses <laughs> of the slave rebellion. Uh, you know, uh, you know, John Brown killed civilians. Uh, Nat Turner killed families. I mean, you know, revolutionary movements are not neat and clean. Um, again, I don't think that's a, that's a carte blanche excuse either, but I do think you have to sort of calibrate and put things into context. And I think that's one of the things I think the kind of legalistic ICC framework, it's like, oh, well, Kissinger's got to go to the Hague. It sort of sounds clever, but like yeah. right. only black people go to the Hague. Like what, what part of this do you not understand? <laughs> you know, there, there, was the, there was the International Criminal Court for Yugoslavia, but that's not the ICC. Um, and that was, you know, sort of that no longer is 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 the mechanism with which it's operating. The the, the ICC itself uh, only prosecutes Africans, and I don't see any reason to think if it's forty five for forty five, it won't be four hundred to four for four hundred ten years from now or twenty years from now. So I I don't I don't I don't have a lot of faith in these systems. Um, it's like someone was really clever the other day. They were like, oh, we're going to make, we're going to make ecocide a crime into the ICC. And it's like, do you have any idea who's going to get prosecuted if you make ecocide a crime in the ICC? <laughs> I, I right. guarantee you it's not going to be Exxon Mobil. It's, it's going to be yeah. fucking some poor guy, some schmuck in Africa who's, who's low hanging fruit. Right. That, that reminds me of something that we, um, we also talk about often on the show. I think actually best exemplified by. Um, a thing that Dean Spade said that uh, when 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 uh, he was on um, most recently, which is that there's kind of this like background assumption that like this makes me think of in the context of this appeal to international courts that there's a sort of a 
like background assumption that a lot of people carry around with them that if you put sort of the right people in these positions mm-hmm. of power in this uh, colonial imperial uh, state that like the state will just spit out pure liberation. <laughs> um, Love Dean. Yeah. yeah, I think he's right. I think Dean, Dean Spade has a lot of good things to, to, to say on this. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, keeping it in this sort of like by keeping things in this realm of international law and war crimes and crimes against humanity, like we're keeping this squarely in the court where Israel is comfortable, which is in, as part of this sort of blue washing NGO aesthetic of Israel as this. Yeah, because who's going who's gonna to go arrest Netanyahu? Like this is the th- right. I, this is what I don't understand when people say this. Like who's who can you imagine? I mean, there's literally something called I mean, well, it, they call it the human the, the Hague Invasion Act. But in 2002, the U.S. passed a law that said if, if, if any Americans ever arrested and imprisoned by, by the IC at the Hague, that the Congress is not allowed to, but is indeed obligated to invade the Hague and liberate them like fucking Rambo too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't know. Does anyone really think of that? Like, or were they going to arrest Netanyahu and what? Like yeah. President Biden's going to let him do that? I mean, it's, it's the whole thing's a joke. It, it's, I, and I don't his know. successor won't do the same yeah, or something. And it's like, I don't know. Other than PR problems. And I do think the PR problems are not nothing. I think Israel doesn't like that it has, you know, I don't think Israel likes being viewed as an apartheid state or a war criminal state. I do think that that helps kind of, that helps pressure, right? But I don't know what the real mechanism here of liberation is supposed to be. And it seems like violently resisting occupation is probably a more meaningful gesture than like, again, I don't know what we're appealing to here exactly. Maybe I'm cynical, but I I don't, I just don't see how that plays out. Like what, I mean, it's like people have thought Donald Trump was going to get arrested. It's like, you guys are living on fucking Neptune, man. It's not going to (laughs) happen. Power does not arrest itself. (laughs) It just doesn't, you know what I mean? Right. No. And, and I think all of this sort of like humanitarian wash on things really just is the perfect smokescreen to hide whatever death and destruction you really want. I think the door knocker, uh, roof knocker bombs, rather. The roof knocker bombs are a great example, which is this uh, really wonderful solution that Israel has come up with, which is where they drop a a warning mortar on the roof yes. of a building. Or sometimes it doesn't even hit the right building. It'll just yeah. be sort of another building. Which is often what they mean when they say we called ahead or something. Right. Yeah. They, they do also sometimes send text messages or calls. But, you know, they're... There's a couple problems with that. One, you know, it does not justify uh, bombing someone's house if you give them a 60 second warning. Right. Like that. That should be pretty obvious, I think, across the board. But also, you know, what this sort of dance does is like ignore the fact that what Israel is doing in Gaza is systematically destroying houses so they can expand the settlement. And I think one great thing that Jespier Poir gets into in her book is she talks about how, you know, Israel has this policy of, of sh- you know, shooting to intentionally disable people. Mm. And so you have a high population of disabled people in Palestine and Gaza in particular. So how is a physically disabled person supposed to get out of a building in 60 seconds? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, no, it's it's one of it's it's obviously very ableist. And this is this was noted in the UN's report on, on Protective Edge that came out in I think 2015, about the 2014 siege in, in July and August of, of 2014, was that several of the people who had, who had died were 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 uh, were, were um, disabled. They, they were in wheelchairs, um, and of course they're not going to be able to get out of a large story building within a matter of often sometimes less than two minutes. Um, you know, yeah. the, the, the AP and, you know, gets the white glove treatment. They get 20 minutes and, and a personal phone call. But, but 
regular Palestinians <laughs> don't don't get that. And so again, if you if you think that Israel's moral because they they do roof knocking, then you have to say that that the IRA and the Weather Underground and the RAF are moral because they did the same thing. They would they would very often call ahead before they blew something up. But I, you know, those, those didn't they even give more notice on average? Too, I, I right? probably, I don't know what the average notice time <laughs> that the IRA gave. Um, but uh, no, I mean, the, you know, it's this is this is if that makes them not terrorists, then we have to make all the other groups not terrorists because uh, that's something that a lot of people have done. You know, and of course, it's based on a contradiction, as Nima pointed out in our episode on it, which is that if they're supposedly targeting Hamas targets and you're giving a phone call to let them know, is Hamas just supposed to stay there like as a matter of pride? Like, mm. like to be honorable to like, oh, you guys won. Like it's, it's, a, it's, it's a game of chess. The, the terrorist honor code. Yeah. Like you know? it's, it's sort of like a don't, don't, sw- you know, if you're up by 10 <laughs> runs, don't swing on a 3-0 pitch because it's bad form. I mean, they, they say they're supposed to just stay in the building and die. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And they'll say, oh, well, it's, you know, we're trying to destroy Hamas infrastructure or whatever. And right. it's like, well, they can take all that in two minutes, three minutes. So it's, it's just a terror regime. It's just, it's literally just to create terror. And they have, there's some fixed number of people that they just, you know, the policy, some in the national security state in Israel, call, they call it mowing the lawn or, or, or uh, maintenance yeah. the lawn, uh, depending on how you, um, and so like, you know, there's some number they have that they have to kill, frankly, some building, the number of buildings they have to kill that they think are, are structurally important to say, okay, you fired rockets. Now it's punishment time. You know, the British imperialists did this. You know, America did this to the Native Americans. It's, it's, a for, it's a form of collective punishment with an understanding mm-hmm. that if you do X, you're going to be inflicted with Y amount of death. And that's their calculation. And that's why they have to carry this on for a couple of weeks because they have to, there's some number somewhere on some whiteboard at the Israeli Defense Department that says we have to get this number and this number of units, you know, destroyed. We have to inflict this much damage so that they won't throw, they will be dissuaded from tossing rockets into Tel Aviv. Even though they usually just kill kill a fucking cow, but I think this time they've actually killed some people because I think maybe their rockets got a little better. But uh, you know, during Protective Edge, they killed six people. I think so far now they've killed ten. Um, but this, yeah. of course, pales in comparison to the hundreds, if not thousands, of people that are injured and killed on the Gaza side. Right. No, exactly. And and I mean, I think this is why the the project of dehumanizing Palestine is such an important um, part of this, because Israel has a sort of protective cover of saying it's like a PR. Yeah. For, as a, from a PR don't. perspective, Israel's like, listen, we're the technologically advanced uh, Pfizer guaranteed, um, you know, superior population here just following orders. And we're making sure to get the Palestinians all of their aid that they need. And but really what they're doing is they're bombing hospitals and they're bombing roads to hospitals and they are only letting in enough food to, you know, feed the bare minimum caloric intake of the population. The settlements use six times the amount of water than Palestinians do in Gaza and have one quarter of the population. If Israel stopped bombing today and never did another bomb, they would, still, would still be, be genocide. doing genocide yeah. on Palestine. Yeah, and I mean, B, I think the the limiting imports by calorie intake thing uh, very that you're referencing very famously uh, one official one Israeli official specifically like very glibly referred to that as uh, 
quote-unquote putting Palestinians on a diet. Mm. Uh, this was a this was a process over uh, over a long time. I guess I'm not I'm not totally sure if it's still happening or not. It's like un- unclear exactly to me. But basically, that there is or was this process of essentially the health ministry calculated on what basis, uh, like what amount of calories would be needed to be able to be like imported into Gaza to keep basic basically starving people, but keeping mm-hmm. them from overt malnutrition and and then of course this ended up being framed as like a beneficent thing like Like altruistic yeah yeah Uh, I think Sarah Roy actually coined this term in her research on like the political economy of Palestine, where she she calls it de-development, where it's this sort of systematic, systematic economic restriction to try and economically and literally starve the people. Because I think one of the big concerns it, that Israel has always had is, you know, making sure not to uh, let their occupied uh <laughs> People become too strong and too healthy to yeah. fight back. Well, it's like a, str- a slow strangling death. Basically. Right, exactly. It's just a little bit softer. It's like hard and soft eugenics, right? It's just a little bit more gentle, a little bit more, you know, uh, pleasing culturally to to the elites in America and people who, who want to uphold Israel's power in the Middle East. And and it, it survives on the continued dehumanization of the population that it's being exerted on. And this is a, a classic tactic, right? You know, we perfected it in the United States in the 1600s when we were trying to figure out how to evaluate um, people in slave markets, right? Well, yeah, a lot of it is, is it's, it's, the way you do that, of course, is you pathologize the population. Mm-hmm. That they're all just a bunch of rabid anti-Semites. Right. They hate Jews. They're racist, and that obscures that, that makes it a moral failing on there. But why don't they love us? Why all we want to do is live in peace, as we exterminate them and push them off the map of existence. <laughs> and, right. and and by the way, you know their very existence is considered offensive. I mean, yeah. imagine you know being called a demographic threat, which you know I'm sure certain immigrants in the United States can relate to, like a demographic threat. Your very existence is offensive to us. Even though you're from here, your parents were from here, your mother was, your grandmother was from here, you can go back 10, 12 generations in Palestine, but your existence is an affront to us. Meanwhile, someone from Long Island can come over and, and, and live in your house. I mean, it's absurd. It, no, no, no rational people would put up with that. No rational people would peacefully co-sign their ethnic cleansing. You'd have to be insane. But they have to pathologize it as, as religious extremism. Even though, of course, right. they did everything in their power. The Israeli government in the 80s did everything in their power to boost Hamas and snuff out the secular resistance of the PLO and the PFLP, right? Because you don't want secular resistance. Because <laughs> then you can't use the line that they're all just a bunch of radical jihadists, right? <laughs> you right. can't use the line that they're all... Because then it's right. a nationalist resi- resistance movement. Also, of course, it gets support from China, the Soviet Union, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, Nelson Mandela, the, you know, ANC, which it did. And... That you don't that you don't want because you want this kind of cartoon war on terror narrative because uh, it, it it obscures the the fact that this is a national liberation movement that of course by its very nature has some has religious parties but is not in and of itself a like quest to destroy the Jewish people. I mean that's absurd. Right, and and I think you're seeing like uh, there's a narrative that's been going around that's like really emblematic of this, which is like the. <laughs> ridiculous assertion that the AP is in cahoots with Hamas and that they actually (laughs) knew and were complicit and that's why their building was blown up because 
the Associated Press is in bed with terrorists, allegedly. Well, yeah, quote, quote unquote, unquote terrorists. I'm like biggest eye roll possible in the whole wide world. Yeah, that that yeah. one is, is is spiraling out of hand. But even we get again, even that's. Uh, you know, they say, oh, that you know, AP looks the other way while Hamas fires rockets. The source is, of course, is a very pro-Israel journalist. And it's not, and you say, well, okay, they look the other way. What are they supposed to do? Tell the IDF where Hamas is located at? You know, no no military would ever permit a journalist to give away their locations. The IDF wouldn't. The IDF, the Israel has very, is very censorious. They, mm-hmm. they very, stru- they, 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 they are not a free speech country. They, they, they censor the press all the time. They especially censor foreign press. Um, so the idea that that's what you're supposed to give away strategic targets, I mean, that's absurd. I mean, and if you don't give away yeah. strategic targets, you're, this is why this terror framing is so important because they're not just sort of a normal militia or normal, they're, they're this ISIS like boogie, you know, boogeyman who we have to all mm-hmm. agree are evil, but you know, you can't operate in Gaza without, you know, it. they, they run this, they run much of the civil society such that it is. Uh, it's just not the same thing. It's not like what we, you know, but they're, they're playing to that ignorance, right? They're playing to this ignorance. Plus, it's, it's a very old trope that everyone in the, you know, media is, is secretly a terrorist sympathizer. This is, this is like old school, like 2000s <laughs> Obama era shit, right? Right, exactly. And, and I think the other thing, too, is that, that you, you do see the way that these framings are sort of complementary to the the strongman persona that I think Netanyahu in particular has been really fond of cultivating for himself. He, I think especially this was really very obvious in the whole public discussion around the Israel-Pfizer collaboration on the vaccine, because, you know, not, not only is this situation going on where there's incredibly disproportionate violence, um, both like social death and physical murder from weapons of war going on between Israel and Palestine. It's also happening in the context of COVID. And there is a second apartheid on top of this social political one, which is just a medical apartheid. You know, they're blocking people who need to get out of Gaza for treatment. Gaza cannot have an airport. They're not allowed to set up a seaport. Patients can't get out. The uh, hospital system has been under blockade for like over 10 years. They can't get supplies. There aren't doctors. They can't like, process medical waste. Yeah. Israel bombed like a Medicine Sound Frontier clinic, right? Like, and the the whole building collapsed and the road collapsed. I mean, and there are trade agreements that like prevent Palestine from being able to dispose of expired medications that right. then gets into the water supply. And, you know, like I think that, that there is... There is like definitely, I think, like a lot of really important parallels going on with the sort of response to COVID and the, you know, enthusiasm around the vaccine that really play in well to the PR apparatus that Israel cultivates because Israel has given all this data to Pfizer. And Pfizer has really become the public face of the sort of push to reopen in the global north. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's 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 the the it's called vaccine apartheid for a reason, which is that there's there's inconvenient humans who we sort of don't care about and don't we sort of nominally care about, but we really don't care about. And we're gonna kind of let things take their course and we're gonna treat poverty as a moral decision or kind of an inevitable, unfortunate law of nature for which we can't do anything. And they're just going to all sort of die. And this is, again, similar to apartheid in the United States, similar to apartheid in South Africa, Israel, 
There's an unwanted n- amount of people. And on a global scale, you, you see this with the vaccine distribution. There's an unwanted group of people who, yeah, we'd like them to maybe live, but we sort of really don't care. And we, <laughs> we can't lose our, our innovation, you know, innovation edge over the big bad Chinese. Um, and that's just, you know, that's the way it is all the time. It's what global capitalism is. I mean, you know, the, the, the Trump instituted brutal sanctions, brutal sanctions on Venezuela and, and Iran. Sanctions, which at the time were roundly condemned by liberals as being too severe, too harsh. Uh, the economists themselves said that the strategy was to, quote, starve the Venezuelans. Seeper the, the, uh, did a report showing it was something like 40,000 people you're dying. Uh, conservatively, we'll say it's 10,000 a year die from sanctions, which is to say you destroy an economy, um, t- you know, tighten the noose. In, in the context of Iran, it's it's you can see huge dips in their GDP, economic production, massive increases of, of uh, uh, lack of medical supplies. People routinely die of cancer for not getting the right medical supplies because the sanctions regime is so so confusing. Biden's been in office for six months, and those those sanctions are still there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when people say, "Oh, well, you know, Biden doesn't doesn't want to watch the children dying," the United States condemns thousands of people to death every year and doesn't blink a fucking eye. Yeah. Because it's it's factored in. It's part of the machine of death. Look at the WTO enforcement rules. Look, I mean, look at this is why the WTO protesters in the 90s were protesting. Because because of what happened in South Africa with AIDS drugs, condemned millions to death. So Pfizer and, 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 and Merck and these other drug companies could make profits. It, it is built into the DNA of their more of their moral ecosystem. Now they shroud it. You know, they don't wake up in the morning and twiddle their mustache and say, Oh, well, you know, I love to watch people die. They shroud it in this kind of <laughs> They shrouded in this this neoliberal. Not all of them. Well, they, they shrouded it in an imperialist or neoliberal ideology that says, "Well, it's yeah. unfortunate they're dying, but we have to maintain innovation." And the patent system is important for economic growth. And at the end, you know, and then, then they sort of started these, these racist tropes about how, oh, you know, even if we wanted to, they couldn't manufacture. It. They don't. They don't have the skills. They did this with the mm-hmm. age drugs, right? Oh, they can't. They can't take age drugs in Africa because they can't sell. It's too complicated. The technology transfer is going to take too long. Too complicated. Yeah. Too long. There's, the moral ecosystem emerges to serve the needs of capital, exactly. not the other way around. And so there's there, there there are tens of thousands. You know, tens of thousands of people wake up every day in the State Department and approve of and support and enforce sanctions regimes on countries that kill tens of thousands of people by, you know, the economist's own admission. This is not a left-wing assertion. This is a, this is what they are supposed to do. They're supposed to contract the economy and fucking mm-hmm. kill people. So presumably the people raise up against their oppressor or whatever. And they wake up every morning and they condemn thousands of people to death, just as they did, just as, you know, we did in Vietnam, just as we did in Iraq. And they have to have an explanation for that because people are fundamentally moral. They have a moral sense. They don't want to be seen as evil. And so these systems emerge to suit that, to suit those needs. And one of the ways that, that, and that is, that is, there is no place where that's in starker display aside from the WTO, especially with the patent, the patent waiver, where you had a whole propaganda apparatus set up to justify why we had to condemn millions of people to not have mRNA vaccines or vaccines that actually work. Um, but more important, I, but I think most starkly is in Israel. I mean, there's a whole like narrative people tell themselves within Israel. I've been there and it's very profound. Um, and it's it's a very indoctrinated population, um, not as much as the United States, but close. And they well, they believe their own shit because there's there's a there's a, again, settler colonies all have these kind of foundational narratives that erase the existence of people. They erase the poor, the inconvenient humans. And people believe it. And I, I don't want to like, rat, I don't want to sort of, make excuses for it but you know people are heavily indoctrinated there and they're heavily indoctrinated in the united states and um when you have a heavily indoctrinated population that that believes you know the, the, the sort of systemic 
subjugation of Palestinians is sort of a cost of doing business or that it's a moral failing on their part or they're all just a bunch of religious wackos, then you can pretty much justify mm-hmm. anything. Right. I mean, I do think that this is one of the reasons why I uh, really appreciate um, you and Nima's project citations needed, because specifically, I think there is, you know, I, I think obviously there's a whole conversation that could be had about uh, the the overall, the you know, the, the specific efficacy and exigency of media criticism uh, as a as a as a form. But that's I mean, that's also almost like an entire separate thing. But I, well, I just wanted to bring one thing in um, regarding the this you know thing that we've been talking about in terms of the the way that uh, all these PR narratives sort of de- like serve to dehumanize um, Palestinians and and a number of uh, and and really are used in in a wide variety of um, situations. But I was reading today. I was I was reading, and I highly recommend this really um, urgent and pretty damning uh, condemnation um, of the the situation going on um, in Gaza coming out of the sort of global public health community um, in specifically the Journal of uh, Palestine Studies. And I want to read one segment in particular, uh, actually, which gets into some of the some of the sort of uh, media framings here and the way that um, this this scenario and COVID have uh, have kind of collapsed and, and the way that the, the media kind of pre-treated, like predestined what was going to happen in Palestine with COVID. Um, so this is, I'm just going to read this briefly. It's from, uh, so this is from the introduction to that issue, the, the most recent issue of the Journal of Palestine Studies. Um, this introduction is written by uh, Dania Kato. Quote, No sooner had the WHO Director General declared COVID-19 a global pandemic in March of 2020 than an avalanche of English language think pieces and op-eds sounded the alarm about the impending doom that would soon befall Palestine and specifically Gaza. Journalists, academics, and activists alike warned that without immediate intervention and left to their own devices in the context of an ongoing settler colonial project, decimating health systems and people's lives and livelihoods, the Palestinians would be swallowed whole by the pandemic. One particularly ominous piece invoked the UN statement declaring Gaza unlivable by 2020. Given the context of a decades-long economic blockade and deteriorating environmental and health infrastructure conditions, the author asks, quote, what happens then when you add coronavirus to the whole mix? It seems we're about to find out, unquote. Such a buckle your seatbelts as this nightmare unfolds voyeurism was woven into and emblematic of so many public responses. Another piece relayed the story of a Palestinian man who, quote, staring at the filthy sea on the coast of Gaza City, tells the author in a whimper, Gaza is ready for its burial. A recipe for disaster, we were warned of a viral global pandemic thrown atop ongoing occupation and settler colonialism, the ultimate quote-unquote underlying condition. This grim narrative tack is ubiquitous and advances a long-standing trope characterizing conditions of health in Palestine as horrifyingly intractable and hopeless. These essentializing frames serve dual roles. Mirroring and often informed by abundant human rights reports, they paint Palestine, the Palestinians, and the Palestinian health sector as uniquely vulnerable to the impact of the pandemic. And they depict Palestinians in the global public health imaginary as a people always on the brink of disaster, always on the periphery of death, barely surviving, exceptionally prone to pathology and early death, awaiting the singular event that will be the final straw that propels them to the ultimate catastrophe and defeat, a Nakba of Nakbas, as it were, totalizing views rooted in racist notions of biological determinism and inherent Palestinian pathology. Yeah, law of nature. 
Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of this line that we've made fun of a lot during the pandemic, which appeared in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that described COVID deaths in vulnerable populations as deaths pulled from the future. It's this kind of like pre foreclosing on life that I think you see rhetorically all the time in particular when it comes to Gaza. Well, yeah, it's that it's that um, I, I, I keep going back to this. I think I've said this about a half a dozen times on our show, but I, I, always, I always go back to Norman Solomon's definition of neoliberalism, which is an ideology that believes in victims, but no victimizers. <laughs> that like bad things just kind of happen. It's the free market. It's sort of, you know, there's a thousand books, right? Malcolm Gladwell, you know, Jared Diamond. There's sort of, it's it's like the cool, the hippest thing you can, Slate has done this for 20 years. The hippest thing you can do is be like, this bad thing happened, but it's actually not really Power's fault. It's sort of just uh, <laughs> right. humankind or some psychological, you know, psychological malfunction or moral failing on the part of the dispossessed or religious, you know, this was a very popular with the new atheist. The religion is sort of this, this amorphous cultural force that does, that operates outside of material conditions. And this is how people responded to the, to the massive deaths in India and Brazil and other, you know, poor countries that this was, this is how we result to poverty every day, right? Poverty, you know, man-made poverty, you know, is, is not a policy choice. It's not a moral decision. We, we, we wake up every day. It's, it's actually just sort of the way it is. And it's not because there's all these wealth hoarding, psycho rich people, you know, trillions of dollars hoarded, um, resources hoarding, imperialist violence. It's not that. It's not occupation. It's just, you know, it's the way, it, it's like the tides or gravity. It's just kind of the way it is. And there's nothing we can really do about mm-hmm. it. It's all very sad. It's been sort of, oh dear, it's all very bad, but but it's not a system. No one's sort of oppressing you. And if you think someone's oppressing you, you're a conspiracy theorist or a wacko or a far left. <laughs> right? And that's what you see a lot yeah. in this sort of Gaza coverage, that it's kind of this woeful place. If only they got their shit together, if only they, you know, they sort of rejected the extremist and went to some slick nonprofit NGO um, you know, meet up in New York or Tel Aviv where they, you know, uh, the bullshit discourse around interfaith dialogue or this kind of liberal claptrap. If only they did more of those. They got more invites from from the, uh, you know, foundation for understanding of why you should not be too bad about being occupied and dispossessed. <laughs> so there's a lot of that bullshit, right? Yeah. It's, it's, viewed as a, it's a viewed as a kind of something we can't do anything about. Poverty is, you see this domestically, right? Poverty mm-hmm. is not. And of course it's not. It's a policy choice. We decide to kill people every day. We wake up every day and we decide to do it. It's a policy choice the government makes. It's a policy choice the rich make because they don't give a fuck. Yeah. And if yeah. you think otherwise, you, uh, you know, uh, you're buying the line. Well, it's, you know, it's just too complicated and you, uh, you couldn't right. possibly understand it. Oh, would, it's all, if very, it, it's if all it were, very complex. Yeah. If it, if it could be otherwise, you know, it would be right, but it couldn't be yep. otherwise. It's too complicated. You just, mm-hmm. you simply don't understand anyway. <laughs> Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. We really appreciate it. You got it. Well, thank you all very much. This was fun. Adam, thank you so much. Listeners, if you want to check out Citations Needed, you can find them on Twitter at Citations Pod, and you can find Adam at Adam Johnson NYC. We'll catch you later in the week in the patron feed. Become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.